You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today is an all-around outdoorsman from Illinois named Luke Oswald. Now, Luke and I met just recently at the ATA show in Indiana, and this guy is super cool. I'm excited to stay connected with him, hopefully do some hunts in the future. And he's got his hands in everything. I mean, he's got a lot of really cool things going on in the outdoor space. And so I'm pumped to talk to him. I'm pumped to pick his brain about hunting and fishing and foraging. I mean, this guy goes out and finds wild edibles and great mushrooms and plants and, I mean, lots of really cool stuff. So, I will warn you, I have a cold if you can't already tell, so you might hear a couple sniffles here and there in this episode, or you're just going to hear me sound kind of nasally. Either way, though, this is going to be an awesome episode. Let's jump into it. Like, he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like, we would be okay. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today is Luke Oswald. Now, Luke and I met actually this last week at ATA. And we were just joking because I feel like I've known him longer than that. He just, he's got one of those familiar faces where I'm like, we had to have connected at some point and it may be like you just mentioned, Luke, uh, your video of eating a bunch of dandelions, just a, a mouthful of them. Uh, but thanks for hopping on, 17. man. 17 of them. 17, the dandelion flower and the stem itself. But uh, unfortunately I got beat by like 23. So next year or this coming spring, it's going to be a different story. Hold on. They beat you with a total of 23 or they beat you by 23. Like they did with, with 23. I think it was 23 total. So, So, I mean, I wasn't too far off. Yeah. It's going to be like (laughs) the Nathan's hot dog eating contest. You guys are just up there, just stuffing your face with dandelions and we're going to see who can eat the most. Well, yeah, something like that, but at least it'll, uh, be a little bit better for your liver and kidneys than, than eating all those hot dogs. So <laughs> I I heard those guys smell like hot, like when they sweat, they smell like hot dogs for a full month after the hot dog yeah. contest. Yuck. That's terrible. Isn't that disgusting? Just thinking about it. <laughs> Especially, I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of Nathan's hot dogs anyway. Maybe it's because I'm a Midwest boy myself, but uh, I prefer like a Portillo's or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. The Nathan's aren't great. And honestly, yeah. <laughs> nothing beats nothing beats getting like venison hot dogs made or making them yourself. I freaking Absolutely. love venison hot dogs. I've never had yeah. elk hot dogs. I feel like that'd be pretty cool. Um, and I, I think that would probably top the venison. But um, yeah, I like I like a real hearty hot dog, not the ones that like fall like when you pick them up and they just kind of like fall apart and break into multiple pieces. Yuck. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Uh, well, hey, for those that don't know, and honestly, a lot of this stuff I'm going to be learning for myself on this podcast. Um, but for the listeners who don't know you, why don't you share a little bit about yourself? I read your bio. I read your uh, answers to the questionnaire that I sent out. And I didn't realize how much stuff you have your hand in. I mean, you do quite a bit. I try to. Um, and that's just my my passion, not actually my day job. But um, so... I am Luke Oswald. I am the 
first and foremost, the host of Publicly Challenged Podcasts. And uh, it's my quest for knowledge to become a better hunter, angler, and forager. Almost all of that is done on public land. And then in turn, as I'm educating myself, I try and educate the listener as well as much as I can to, uh, you know, kind of pay it forward. So I'm not the only one just learning all this cool stuff out there because it's all around us. It's ever encompassing and it's part of our outdoor lifestyle anyway. When most of us are hunters, we just don't realize that we have that connection. And uh, other than that, I've got publiclychallenged.com, which uh, there's some pretty cool merch on there as well. It's just ideas that I've had while out in the field, whether it's uh, sitting in a tree stand, which we all know when you're doing that, you've got a lot of time to sit and think. And then uh, sometimes it just happens. You'll be in the boat casting and uh, it's a slow fishing day. And all of a sudden, all these ideas just they pop in your head. So I decided to take them and actually put them into a concept. And then I also have some uh, hunting related items as well that I've designed a stick clip and a platform clip for a better way to hang your stuff rather than use like parachute cord or something like that to climb up and deploy it. So it's readily accessible while you're climbing the tree and hanging your set. I I'm going to have to hop on your website and buy some of this stuff because that last one alone, dude, I am very new to saddle hunting. Um, you should have seen me the other night. It was probably my like sixth. I, w- I would bet it was my sixth time climbing a tree with the saddle set up. I was struggling so hard. I look like an idiot. It does. It makes perfect sense. It was the final day of season, and it makes perfect sense that I didn't see a single thing because of how much noise I was making on the way up the tree. I was yeah. like doing the whole like throwing the strap around the backside, <laughs> like trying to catch it. It's like clanking, hitting the stick underneath me. It was a mess. And this this off season, I'm going to be practicing how to get up a tree a little bit more stealthily. Yeah, for sure. I think part of that is uh, one, understanding your equipment and um, if it takes stealth stripping it or eliminating some of the metal from it or just doing anything you can to make it more of a natural sound and a little bit quieter. So that's like I use Timber Ninja, uh, the carbon fiber sticks. That's originally what I designed the stick clip for. Those are amazing sticks. But then again, so are the, the new latitude sticks that are coming out too. So, I mean, those are pretty impressive. It's like injection molded plastic with carbon fiber weave in them i mean something like that to where and people always say about the weight the weight the weight it's who cares about the weight you know what i mean like be a man suck it up and just carry it in (laughs) you know (laughs) and uh, so for me i love that this you need to just have a podcast called be a man and and just (laughs) give everyone who complains about their equipment a hard time but uh the whole thing is, is you know it's when you start utilizing products such as polymer or carbon fiber, no longer does it have that metal tink to it anymore. That sound that's so, so unnatural and you know, it just doesn't belong in the woods. So do all the animals. And so eliminating those different things and, and bringing those into the fold are, are something that's going to be revolutionary as far as sound stuff, you know, as far as deadening sound. That makes sense to, to have sounds that are more familiar or at least not extremely foreign to them. I feel like we just need to make sticks out of elk antlers. And then anytime (laughs) they clank, it's like a dual purpose. You're rattling and climbing. Yeah. It sounded like a whole herd of bulls were, were fighting when I climbed up the tree. Yeah, I I believe that I've actually had, uh, using the old school lone wolf hand climber and, uh, early in the morning prime rut and had a buck come in and investigate because he heard the scraping of the tree stand oh, yeah. up against the tree. And he thought it was like another buck in his territory rubbing on a, on a tree. That's and he cool. came and investigated and it was dark. The only thing you could see is like a silhouette. So I don't, I still to this day don't know how big he is, but he must've caught a little bit of wind of me or something, but I've had one come in to that noise. So, I mean, it, it does happen. That's pretty cool. That, <laughs> yeah. We're, I mean, Typically, in that situation, you're both still laying on the ground. Those are some of my favorite but also cringy videos that I watch online are when somebody gets up in their tree and their bow is still attached to their tether but all the way down below them and a buck walks in. Um, I've been caught like that before, and it was not because of the noise I was making going up the tree. It just so happened a doe walked in, and I'm, I'm looking at her probably eight feet away 
and I'm only seven feet up the tree at this point. I mean, I just started climbing and I heard a crunch and I'm like, no way. And I look and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's one looking yeah. at me right there. I mean, we weren't fully eye level, but it it wasn't far off. And uh, yeah, she just walked around, fed. It was a young doe. And I pretty quickly realized that I probably could have jumped out of the tree, grabbed my bow, ran over and stabbed her with a knife um, because she yeah. was just so dumb. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've had it. Except most of the time, it's opposite. It's I'm getting out of the tree, not climbing up the tree. Oh yeah, and it's a little premature. Just you know, not seeing anything and thinking there's nothing there. And next thing you know, you climb down, and you're halfway down your ladder stand. Your bow's already lowered, and you look over, and you're like, "Oh crap!" Totally busted. <laughs> They're staring right at you. That's actually happened more than once. More than I'd like to admit, for sure. Yeah, I've I've had a lot of different animals show up right at the end. I the one that pisses me off the most i think was a coyote there was a super mangy coyote out on the property that i hunt and i'm looking at my watch and i'm like man it still seems super light out but this is officially the end of the day and uh, i turn around i start putting my stuff in my backpack and i hear a, a crunch and i look over and here's this coyote at like 15 yards and i'm like oh my gosh i had just taken my release put it in my uh jacket pocket you know, take, uh, taking an arrow out of the rest, put it back in the, in the quiver. And then, so I'm having to like reverse everything I just did. And I never did get a shot at it, but yeah, the end of the night, are, are you the type of guy who, if you're in your tree stand and a deer comes in, will you just sit and wait so that you don't blow it out? Yeah. Like, do you yeah, you'll do. sit for I've, a long time? I've sat for an hour and a half before one time I was actually peeing out of my tree stand. Um, and it, and it was like, I was going to, I don't know, I couldn't hold it any longer and didn't want to get down yet because there was still like 15, 20 minutes of prime shooting light. Yeah. So, so I pee out of the tree stand and then, uh, next thing I know, here comes this little spike buck coming in and he's just sniffing at the base of my tree. And then here comes another buck smelling and it's my wind just blowing my scent, my urine scent around. And these bucks started coming in and investigating and I'm like, I'm going to get down now. So I waited around. I think the bigger buck took off way before that little, that little spike did, but I still didn't want to scare the spike off, you know, not in an unnatural way anyway. Yeah. And so I I waited, I think for like an hour and a half before he finally left and I got down. Dang. (laughs) I I'll try to be sneaky. I guess I haven't ever had it where they're like right underneath me. We're super close. They'll be out in the bean field, but typically where I hunt, I'm about, I don't know, six to 10 feet inside of the woods, like in the, on the second tree in. And so I can, I can usually climb down my tree and still get out, even if they're out in front of me, a hundred, 150 yards. Um, so I, I have yet to have them right underneath me, but that'd be, that'd be pretty interesting. Like you're just sitting there knowing that nothing can come from this. Like yep. best case scenario is you get out of there and you don't blow them out, but it's not like you're benefiting anybody by by staying up there you know what i mean i mean you're yeah. benefiting your future hunts but uh yeah that'd be pretty wild Yep. so that's me i stay up <laughs> i always wait till the last minute i don't pack my stuff up early i've just i've learned over time that there's too many blown opportunities that could have happened and uh you know if you're packing your stuff here's a buck that you never even knew was there it was bedded 40 or 50 yards away from you something like that happens and i mean it happens all the time so yeah. I'd rather not take those chances and who knows, maybe that last minute of shooting light, you can, can capitalize on an opportunity. That's always my, my hope is that it's like, Oh, last minute I'll look at my watch and say, it's like five fifty eight, right. Is shooting light. Yeah. It turns five fifty eight, and my buddies will be like time to go. And I'm like, no, we have till the end of five fifty eight. Like you stay put, <laughs> just sit tight. And, uh, I, I actually had my first ever deer. It was kind of a similar story to what you just described. I I actually had a small buck walk in. I was hunting with a 20 gauge shotgun. No, like not even a front and rear sight, just a bead sight on the end of it. You couldn't change out the barrel. There's no choke, nothing in this thing. And I was shooting slugs out of it. I was sitting in a homemade wooden tree stand, probably eight to 12 feet off the ground. And this buck comes in and I'm so pumped and I, I raise my shotgun, pull the trigger and it runs off. And I'm just like, Oh, I had to have smoked it. It was like less than 50 yards away. 
super pumped, go over there, no blood, no hair, nothing. And I search and search and search, can't find any sign that I hit this deer. And I turn around and I'm pretty upset. And I was like, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk back to my tree. I'm going to climb up the tree, like visualize where it was again, and then come back and make sure I'm like searching in the exact spot it was standing. And as soon as I turn to go back to my tree, I see this like one inch branch just dangling from the tree that my slug had just gone right into. And I'm like, everything makes sense. So I'm, I'm more than upset. Final day of season. I get up in the tree and I'm like, I'm mad. I take a leak right off the tree. I'm like talking to myself, like scolding myself almost. And all of a sudden I see movement right in front of me, like 10 feet in front of me. And I'm like, this is the last, it was literally the last minute of shooting. And I see this movement and I'm like, what the heck? That's a deer. And it goes behind the tree, steps back out. And I didn't, it was so, it was getting so dark in the woods that I barely even saw it step out from behind the tree. Anyways, I pull up with my shotgun and I shot that thing at probably 10 feet away. And, uh, it last minute, only time I've ever had that happen where <laughs> I've killed a deer in the actual last minute, not only the last minute of the day, but the last minute of season. And, uh, from then on, I'm like, I'm staying out till the very last minute and it's never worked out for me. So it's a good feeling when it happens. So it definitely keep going with it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What, what got you into the outdoors? I mean, is this something you've always done, uh, especially foraging? Because, you know, I talk to a lot of hunters and fishermen, uh, when it comes to foraging, you don't, I feel like that community is definitely a lot smaller. Um, but it's something that's very intriguing to me. And I think to a lot of other people. Um, well, I mean, I've always been part of the outdoors, uh, since a little kid, I went fishing with my dad, went small game hunting with my dad, mostly upland birds, but, um, at the same time, you know, squirrel hunting, stuff like that. Um, then I got, when I was about 15, I got a bow. My dad bought me a, a compound bow. It was a Pearson, uh, and shot that thing until it needed a new string. Uh, and then next thing you knew, my, me and my buddies were like, well, hey, let, let, let's go deer hunting, you know? No mentorship, really, just kind of all of us working together. And uh, from there, we were like, okay, what do we do? Hung a few stands, got in them, had no idea what we were doing, had some amazing opportunities that we could have uh, been successful on if we just would have known a little bit more at the time. Yeah. And then uh, I've always been interested in foraging, though. My dad bought me the Army Field, field Manual on Survival 2176 or whatever it is yeah. uh, when I was like 10 years old, you know. So that's got everything in there, all the way from like skinning an animal, trapping an animal to all these different plants that you can identify and eat, right? And uh, I think maybe the only thing I actually ever ate out of that was like a cattail shoot. And even then I was kind of scared of it and just, you know, took like one little nibble of it or whatever. And that was you about didn't bite it. the big brown part? And have it like pour out of your <laughs> yeah, mouth. The cotton. Yeah. So no, I've never done that. Uh don't sit there and eat dandelions that have uh turned to turned to little seed pods already to where they float away. And yeah, you know, you don't want that. But uh so yeah, I mean, that was kind of that was the start of it. And I've always been curious about it, but I never really took it any further until one day I was in the tree stand and I was just like, all these plants, all these things around me. Like I see them all the time. I can recognize them. I can tell you, Hey, this is this and that's that. But all the rest of the stuff, I have no idea what it is and who knows, maybe I could be eating it. So that kind of started the drive. I started the podcast, started doing research on my own. And then next thing you know, three years later, here I am, uh, learning, learning enough to where I can somewhat teach other people. And it's a pretty cool feeling, you know? Um, so that, that's kind of how it all got started. That's, that's pretty sweet. So like when you go out now, I mean, do you just take foraging trips and go out and collect different things that you can eat or use? Uh, or is this like, you're, you're almost supplementing your snacks and stuff. When you go out hunting, you're like, Hey, check this out. I know what this berry is. I know what this plant is. I can actually eat it. Um, what, what is the application for that right now for you? So the way I look at it, number one is that we love to be out there anyway, right? So you've always got 
your your preseason scouting, your postseason scouting, your actual season that you're hunting. And then, of course, you've got, you know, your turkey hunting and whatever else, small game stuff. But that only gets you outside so much. Yeah. And to be able to maximize that time even more and say, hey, I know what this is. And I didn't come home empty handed because a, a prime example of that is a lot of times in October, early November, um, there's hen of the woods mushrooms, which are some of the greatest mushrooms out there. And you're already deer hunting, you're out there. And there's times when I get down out of the stand and I'm going to move to a different stand or something during midday, I'm swinging by certain spots because I know there is going to be a buttload of mushrooms. And uh, so I'll pick and sometimes I'll come home empty handed as far as, you know, filling a tag but at least I didn't come home completely empty handed because I've come home with 40, 50, even 60 pounds of mushrooms before. Jeez. And so I, I'll carry them in game bags, the same game bags that I would quarter up a deer. I'll take those and just pile those full and hang them on my pack or shove them in my pack and come home with a whole bunch of mushrooms. So it's a good way to maximize it. But yeah, there's also trail side nibbles too. So, you know, all kinds of different plants are uh, taking, taking like a, a chunk of a, uh, branch from spice bush and gnawing on like the twig i mean it tastes amazing it's weird you can't almost even describe it but it's like a a cinnamony clovey type of uh mm. scent to it and it's out there and it's at the same time in the fall you know you just break off a branch and start nibbling on it tastes amazing um the, another one i showed my buddy for the first time was uh multiflora rose and one of the trees i was hunting and had it all over down below it so he texts me and says he's getting down for the, the afternoon and uh, I get down too. And he's like, where are you? I'm waiting at the truck. And I said, I got a little distracted. I'm picking uh, quite a few uh, rose hips. And so I was nibbling them all along the way and I gave him some and he's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. He goes, it almost tastes like a fruit roll up, but it's got these stupid seeds in there that you got to worry about and spit out. But yeah, other than that, because they've got like a little barb on them. So you don't want to actually swallow those seeds. Dang, that's, that's, <laughs> that's super cool. I would love to have that knowledge. I mean, I actually took a foraging class with this guy who is a freaking expert on it. And I just got so inundated with information that I basically forgot everything. Cause he would tell me something and I'm like, that is the coolest thing ever. And then he'd go to the next thing and I'm like, that's the new coolest thing ever. And we walked around the woods and I mean, he showed us like 50 to 70 different things that we could eat or use for medicine or use to treat like, uh, poison ivy, poison oak, things like that. And I was like, I was just blown away by it all. Um, but yeah, he, he had us try different foods, but I think the, the coolest moment for me, as far as foraging goes, cause I'm not a big forager, but when we went up to Kodiak Island, uh, our friends that were there, they were like, Hey, there's a lot of stuff that you can eat on the trail. And we're like, Oh, okay. And so we're walking and they're like, these are salmon berries. Here's mm -hmm. some wild blueberries here's some mountain strawberries, like all of these different berries. And so when my wife and I actually went up on the mountain for the blacktail deer hunt, we were completely by ourselves and we brought these mountain house meals and a couple snacks here and there. We ended up spending the whole evening and then the next morning and the whole hike out, not eating a single thing except salmon berries and blueberries that we found on the trail. And that yeah. was pretty cool. And it just felt really rewarding. And like, I was that much more connected to my environment. That's just it. I mean, you really are, you're immersing yourself in that environment, but, but back to what you said about the whole uh, class you took and everything, that's great that somebody taught you that so much. But what I found out is when somebody gives you that much information and just overloads you, you retain so much less. So if I'm learning or trying to show somebody else and a lot of the instructors that I do know, they'll focus heavily on like four or five, maybe six different things and leave it at that. But they want you to get intimate with those things. Yeah. They want you to actually touch it. They want you to feel it. And, and by doing that and developing that actual connection with it, you're, you're not just going to say, oh, that's this plant. You're going to say, Oh, that's this plant. It kind of looks like alligator skin, but it feels real slippery between my fingers. And, and those are the things that when you do that, you're going to retain that even better because now all of your senses are becoming fulfilled with that information. Yeah. So then it, it, 
it makes that connection and that bond. And that bond is never broken once it's there. And it just opens up so many doors and you realize how many of these plants are actually your friend. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, that does sound, I mean, it sounds like a great way to go about learning this stuff because that guy knew more than, he he's forgotten more about plants than I'll ever know, probably. And I find myself doing what he did to me, but with like podcasting or social media, when I'm talking to people, I just go and go and go. And then I see that look on their face like, uh, I'm going to remember one thing that you said where it makes sense. If you go out on a trip and you say, hey, look, I'm going to go and look for these three plants. I'm going to try to figure out exactly what they are. I'm going to get my hands on them. Where are they growing? Um, and, and you really get intimate with just a few at a time. Then a year from now, after 10 trips out there, you might have 30 plants that you feel pretty close to. Whereas if you try to go identify all 30 on your first day out there, you're probably not going to do very well. Uh, yeah. So that's that's good information because I want to get my kids out there doing this stuff also. Like I want them to be able to go out, find those little things that are fun to eat. And it's just kind of a cool, cool learning experience for them. And then if we actually yeah. go out camping, you know, we can go and, and dive a little farther into it. I've got, I've got all three of mine out there doing it. And what's crazy is the stuff that took me two years to learn and retain, they're doing it in three months and, and able to retain it and then take it and show it to their grandparents or their friends or somebody else. And it's like, what? It's so crazy, but they yeah. are just, they're sponges and they'll, they'll retain it and know it better than you will. They'll become the teacher before you know it. It's pretty crazy to watch it develop like that. That is cool. I, I would love that. I would love for them to come back. And this guy that uh, put on the class, it was pretty interesting to hear him talk because he grew up in Arkansas and it wasn't like, oh, hey, we're learning this stuff. It was just their way of life from the time that they were born. He didn't have any running water. He didn't have electricity until he was like 20 something years old. And his mom would tell the kids like, hey, go and grab a bunch of stuff for dinner. And they would run around the woods and gather all of these wild edibles and bring them back home. And most of their feasts were squirrel mixed with a bunch of stuff that they found out in the woods. And I'm like, dang, I can't, I can't imagine. I, I like watching the shows where people are doing this stuff. I like watching alone and, and seeing people actually survive off of it. And here I am in a place that's actually really rich with wild edibles and plants, not doing anything. And so I think I'm going to, I mean, I always tell myself I'm going to do these new things. And this year I'm really trying to put it into practice to where I'm expanding uh, my knowledge and my information about the environment I'm in and the environment I hunt in. And so I'm going to take, I'm going to take your advice and pick like two or three things each time and just try to really get intimate with them out in the woods. Yeah. So I'll let you in on a couple of secrets here. One, if you've got an iPhone and you take a picture of it, there's an actual little icon that's like an information thing and it's got an eye and a couple little stars around it. If you tap on that, it's about 60% accurate. So it uses artificial intelligence, but what it does is it actually takes that picture, cross-references cross it to pictures on the internet, and then comes back and tells you what the plant is. So not That's great cool. for actually identifying things, but if you've got an idea or an inclination of what something is, you take a picture of it and you do that, and then it confirms what you thought it was, that's that's a pretty good basis to go off of. Also, uh, Sam Thayer is probably one of the best authors out there as far as foraging books go. He's got three of them, and there's a pre-sale going on his fourth one right now, which is actually a field guide um, to edible plants in North America. So it's really expanded. It's not just in the Midwest, but incredible wild edibles, uh, a forager's harvest. And um, gosh, I can't think of the third one. But if you just type in Sam Thayer on Google or Instagram, I mean, not Instagram, um, on Amazon, any one of those, they'll pop up and you'll be able to get those books. And those are amazing books. All right, guys, if you've been listening to the podcast, I'm sure you've heard me talk about the helicopter hog hunt that I did down in Texas. Now I went down there with Rogue Texan Outfitters and Landon and Brandon, the owners, put us on the animals. We killed 150 pigs and 19 coyotes just from the air. On top of that, we went out thermal hunting at night and got up close and personal to more hogs. I didn't have to worry about bringing guns or ammunition because all of that was provided for me. And it is to this day the most action-packed day of hunting I've ever had. 
I stand by what I've said in the past, and that's that helicopter hog hunting is the funnest thing that you can do with pants on. In addition, they offer sandhill crane hunts and predator calling. So if you're looking for the most exciting hunt of your life and something that you're going to want to come back and do year after year, go check out roguetexan.com and book your hunt today. Yeah, I'll have to check those out. I definitely, um, I definitely need all the help and all the resources I can, uh, I can get right out of the gate because I get, I get overwhelmed by the amount of information out there. And I just have to understand that everybody started with identifying one, you know, Mm -hmm. nobody, nobody went out there and knew them all right out of the gate. Uh, what is your, what's your go-to? Like what, if you had one time a year or one thing that you liked going and forging for the most, what would it be? Impossible. That's impossible. to answer. Uh, it, It really is because every season brings something new and that's, that's amazing. So like, Right now, we're kind of in the dead zone. Hunting season is over. It's ending really soon. There's very little going on as far as new growth, as far as flora or anything like that. But there's still an occasional winter mushroom or something like that that you might find. And then on top of that, next thing you know, it's March. And then it's sapping season. And then so like that's that's the initial. That's the start. That's the start of it all. And so then you start tapping trees. And I just found out. Uh, not that long ago that you can actually tap other trees other than maple trees. So you can tap black walnuts or birches. And I'll tell you what, black walnut syrup, I think, has become my new favorite. It's really? not as it's not as sweet, but it's got a caramely texture, like taste to it. And it's amazing. It is freaking absolutely That's amazing. interesting. We have so many freaking black walnuts around here. Yeah. Yeah. I got to so try that. That's, that's one. So then here's something else. If you take the black walnuts, excuse me, you take the black walnuts and you crack them open, which is kind of a pain in the butt to do, but worth it. You can take those, preserve them in honey in the fall. And then think about this, black walnut syrup with preserved black walnuts on top of a pancake. Oh. Yeah, so good. Not to mention black walnuts, super high in protein. Yeah. So, I I don't know if there is a black walnut capital but if there is, I'm pretty sure it's the property I used to live on because I would yeah. go out there and mow the lawn. And I, I started, I got to the point where I was calling people like, Hey, I have free black walnuts. Just come and pick everything up. The whole, every mature tree in the yard was black walnuts. And it just drove me crazy running over them with the lawnmower all the time. Yep. And so, um, yeah, the, that stuff, there were three sugar maples right out in front of the house that my buddy actually came out and tapped. And every time, like I said, I, I always have these ideas of like, man, I'm going to get into this and then I never do anything about it. But it's going to happen. And I guarantee as soon as I tell Brad that you can tap a black walnut, he is going to get on it this spring. Yeah. Because... So black walnuts, it's it's one of those things that you don't think about until you know it. And then it's like, wow. And what's cool is getting the kids involved in that. Yeah. You can have them help you drill the holes, have them tap the spiles into the tree and then get them involved in the collection process. And that, that creates that bond. And I don't know if you know this, but you can take the actual sap itself. And my wife actually makes coffee with the sap instead of water. It's, it's so it adds like a different uh, sweetness to the coffee and just kind of makes it, it's a nice little refreshing treat. Interesting. Yeah. Man, this is like, <laughs> This is mind blowing. If you would have told me I was going to get excited on this podcast about plants, I would have called you crazy, <laughs> but this is pretty interesting stuff. There's so much out there. And and the thing is, is, I mean, I've been told that I'm the eternal student. And now I kind of start to have insight and understand that, but there's so much out there, so much that we've forgotten. There's more yeah. things that we've forgotten than we'll ever be able to relearn. And uh, just, I mean, plants and medicine, so many different things. And what's cool is when I husk my black walnuts, um, black walnuts that the actual husk is actually known as a, a dewormer. So huh. it, it can be used as like an antiparasitic slash dewormer. And you can make tinctures out of that and take it for medicine, for yourself, for your animals, whatever. And uh, when I started hauling my black walnuts and I'd use it like pressure washer and have them in the bucket of the tractor and just do a whole big load of them at once. And that's done and over with. Um, I dumped the water onto the ground and all of a sudden I'd see all these night crawlers come out. And then I told somebody about it and they're like, oh, that's because it's a anti-parasitic slash dewormer. And I'm like, what? 
So then I started digging into that and sure enough, they were right, but that's actually, it was going, it was driving those worms out of the soil because it was uh, uninhabitable for them at, for, at the moment. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Pretty cool. That is so wild. You're dude, a year from now, you're going to catch me out in the woods in like a buckskin suit, just living <laughs> off of wild plants and animals that Perfect. <laughs> this stuff is just so interesting to learn about, man. Uh, are, so obviously this is, this is a learning process that never ends. I mean, there's always more to learn. Have you thought about like competing in anything? Because I'm sure you get all the time like, oh, dude, you could be on a loan. You could be on a loan. I've, uh, I've, I've been told that. I, I watch the show sometimes myself, but I've never actually uh, submitted anything to any of them. But if they came and they invited me, I'd, I'd consider it. You know, why not, right? It'd be cool, man. Yeah. To to test it, have you done that? Have you tested your skills at all? Like for an extended period of time, have you gone out with, you know, limited limited food and just tried to kind of live off the land? I have in the past, definitely when I was younger, um, and I didn't even know about you know, foraging then. But you know, you try and do like with your buddies, like a you know two day stay out in the woods challenge, and of yep. course we things we knew, but it, you know just like dandelion leaves, whatever, throw those greens in the pot and, and uh, cook up a squirrel or something we shot. But it was just, even then it was just kind of see what we could do, but I've never done, you know, 72 hour or something like that challenge where I could stay out for a couple of days and just live off the land. But it's, I mean, it's possible. You don't really need that much for a few days anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to start starving just yet. I mean, you'll be hungry, but uh, you'll be all right. What, yeah. uh, what all are you involved in, in the hunting side of the outdoors? I mean, what's your go-to hunt or what's your favorite thing to go after? I mean, whitetail is king. It's always going to be king. Uh, I mean, probably 90% of people in the United States hunt whitetail more than anything else. Um, but definitely Western hunting. Um, hopefully maybe this spring I can go out on an actual black bear hunt out West. Um, I've been out elk hunting a couple times, plan on trying to get out maybe this year or next year for sure. It just kind of depends on what I draw. Um, and then I haven't really got into high country mule deer hunting or anything like that yet. Um, that's definitely on the list of things to do along with antelope hunting too. It's just yeah. a matter of getting enough time to get out and do it. As far as your hunting stuff goes, are you, like you said, whitetails king, are you targeting public land, private land? So I'm like 99% public land. I do like maybe one or two hunts the entire season on private land. And other than that, it's public land. I'm out there scouting, searching, grinding it out, trying to find a big deer and, you know, clipping a few other tasty ones in between. Yeah. What, uh, what did this year look like for you as far as hunting went? Did you find um, success? Did you branch out to new properties? I feel like there's an epic fail coming right now based on that <laughs> reaction. Is, there is a total epic fail. Um, so during my rutcation, as I call it, I take, you know, one week to a week and a half to hunt prime rut and uh, get out there before all the gun hunters get out there and kind of ruin the woods for everybody. Not, not knocking all the gun hunters, but it's just, it's no. a fact that once, <laughs> I think once they get out it. there and shots are ringing out, you know, it, it tends to uh, put them in a disrupted pattern from their norm, normal patterns. Um, Listen, anybody listening either agrees <laughs> with you or they're the ones ruining the hunt for everyone else. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I always try and get out there before the gun season actually starts. And uh, this year, I explored a few new pieces and also went to a few that I knew would produce. And one of the ones that I knew would produce, I did two sits trying to chase down a decent buck or actually two really nice shooter bucks. I saw, I don't typically hang cameras or anything like that. Um, just because in the past I've had too many failures based upon those and wasted too much time being yeah. out trying to pursue one animal rather than pursue opportunities. So I don't do a whole lot of that. Um, but so I was out on this piece of property, saw a couple shooter bucks, tried to hone in on them and get in on them. It took about two more sits. And then uh, I had a really nice, I don't know, 150, 160 public land buck. And uh, he, he didn't, he came 
about 20 yards from me, but was in some thick brush, couldn't get off a good shot. And he was like extreme quarter away. And he circled back around and ended up popping out at 40 yards. So, or I'm sorry, 36.6 yards. So I was like, okay, that's just a chip shot. But (laughs) I shoot really heavy arrows and uh, actually a little too heavy. So I'm going to tweak my process on the bow here a little bit and get some lighter arrows. But anyway, moral of the story is, you got a huge trajectory with heavy arrows. There's a yeah. big arc. And that big arc makes a big difference when you set your bow at 40 oh, yards God. instead of like 36 or 34, whatever it was. And so I shot, lined it up. It was perfect. He stepped out. His back half or front half was still in front of a tree, his head and everything. And the rest of them, his vitals and everything were exposed. And so I drew back and let it fly. And it went, and I'm like, that didn't even hit him. Where did it go? And it went right over his back, directly over his back. He realized something happened, but it didn't spook him. But he took off and never got any closer than that and never had another opportunity. So and that was like the day before shotgun season, I think. So, (laughs) no. Oh, geez. I do love. So I know you mentioned you don't do a lot of trail camera stuff, and I think that we can use it as a crutch for sure when we're hunting. And you'll, you'll use it as an excuse to go out and it'll give you false confidence or you'll use it as an excuse to not go out at all because you don't see deer. Well, there's deer moving, whether or not you get them on camera is totally different story. Um, but I like, I definitely like using trail cameras for that, like after gun season, uh, period to know what deer are still alive, you know? Oh yeah. There's nothing yeah. better than just like a month and a half goes by and you're like, dang it, he's dead. He's dead. And then all of a sudden, 1 a.m., one random night, he shows up on trail camera. And you're like, yes, he's back. Whether or not you catch yeah. up with him the next year, that's a totally different thing. There's, there's, so the one parcel that this is is pretty much only a rut piece of property is what I've come to discover. Okay. And there's a lot of private that is really, really good land that actually houses these deer. And it just so happens that I found a piece that's a sanctuary for them during the rut. Yes. You end up going and breeding with all the does in the area and everything. And so I've, I've honed in on that and I know I can go there during rut and I'm going to see something that's going to be nice. So that's sweet. What, yeah. where, what state are you in? I'm in Illinois. Okay. Because when you said like, oh, it was a really nice 150, 160 public land buck, there's a lot of people going, what? Like <laughs> you, you say that like it's no big deal at all. And so it makes sense that it's, I was figuring it was going to be Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa, or Kansas. Yeah, <laughs> they tend they tend to produce. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's crazy is a lot of people think like, oh, Michigan, there aren't any big bucks or anything. They are. You just got to find them. And that yep. used to be my biggest problem is even just finding these deer. But once you start following the right sign and finding the right habitat that's going to house them, it makes it a lot easier. And I mean, let's face it, on public land, the hardest thing is not necessarily finding the deer, but finding ways to get away from the people to find the deer. Yeah. Are you... So I know you had mentioned it's like this little sanctuary. Are you, are you finding the like major bedding areas with thick cover that you're going after deer in? Are you finding those transition corridors or the funnels? Uh, what, what's your favorite terrain or topography to chase after? Yes. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> perfect. No, it, de- it depends on, on, um, each piece of property, but so I'll break it down and I'll e-scout it before I ever even go there. Yep. And uh, w- what's funny is this year, my buddy actually found one and he's pretty good at doing this too, but finding stuff that is pretty obscure and we didn't know was right in front of our noses the entire time. Yeah. And so this year he's like, Hey, was this always a cornfield? And he texts me and he's like, because it's surrounded by all this private property. There's this cornfield here. This is public. And uh, you know, I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I went there and I kind of scouted through there because it's close to where I go for mushrooms sometimes, but I think it's always corn. And he's like, no, I, is it? It turns out, yeah, they, the state turned it into a pheasant field a few years back. So most people don't actually oh, deer dang. hunt it, yeah. but before pheasant season, you're allowed to deer hunt it. And so 
we went in there and it was just deer all over, not a lot of good trees to hang in or anything, but definite, I mean, definite possibilities there for uh, killing something. And yeah, they, now the state plants corn in it every year and they don't harvest the corn. They just knock it down. So then it's there and oh, it's on the ground. Even it's better. almost like baiting them, but you're not because the state put it there and it's legal. So, Hey, I yeah. will totally let the state bait <laughs> deer for me. That sounds yeah. great. Yeah. So just, I, I try and look at things like that or just find something that pops out on the map that says, okay, this has got a bunch of funnels that lead into this area. That's real thick cover and sanctuary. And then, you know, try and find an approach and uh, figure out wind directions and things like that to where you can actually access it and get out of it without getting busted, I think is pretty important. Yeah. The, the access side of things is something that, I mean, I feel like it's hit on a lot now. And it makes sense because if you blow the deer out before you even make it to your stand, what's the point? Um, for me, I hunt mostly private for whitetail. I am really excited though. I, I've talked to my buddy Parker a couple times now, and he does like kayak or boat in hunts on public land. Yep. And he'll find those spots where he can just access from his kayak and he'll just cruise back in there or a canoe or whatever and find these areas where I've, I've unintentionally scouted for whitetail while duck hunting on some major lakes around here. And I have found some serious travel corridors that I'm hoping to hit this next year. Yeah. And that's a great way to do it is actually get in a boat or a canoe or a kayak and explore the edges of those properties and then stalk your way in to try and scout. And uh, that's actually how I discovered a few of the ones that I actually hunt now. And I still access them by the water. Water access is probably one of the greatest, most oh, underutilized sure. ways to get in and sneak in on animals. I, I totally agree. I mean, nothing, nothing beats just like slow cruising in. Cause I mean, you can, you can take a motorized boat somewhere and then you can push pull your way the rest of the way, or, you know, you've got your canoe hooked up and you get back in there and uh, that one specific hunt that I was waterfowl hunting on, I remember we looked over and we saw like this black squirrel and the ducks, the duck movement was slow. And I was like, I'm going to go try to shoot that black squirrel because it was in season. And so I walk over there and as soon as I get across this little, uh, inlet that we were hunting, I see a, a scrape and I'm like, no way. I was like, oh, sweet. This is, this is cool. And I look down and then I just see a rub line that goes for 200 yards through the woods. I mean, it was like, it was oh. like a landing strip, man. I mean, you could just see it all the way down. I'm like, dude, this is unbelievable. And it's a natural funnel. You know, I look up, there's private land right up over the hill, a bean field. And then you have water. You've got this beautiful hillside covered in oaks. And I'm like, this is, this is the most brilliant way to hunt ever if you're hunting public land, especially if you have a boat, because everybody parks at the parking lot, they all walk in, they all try to get as far back in as they can. But especially if you're in a state where like Missouri has a lot of lakes where 95% of the shore of the lake is uh, public land. And most of it isn't accessible by roads. So if you can get in a boat and go find it, you're going to weed out 99% of the other hunters from that area oh yeah it's a good way to access for sure what uh what do you have coming up this year have you have you made a list of hunts that you want to do in 2023 uh do you do the whole new year's resolution thing as far as hunting goes no i don't do a hunting new year's resolution uh just uh try and get out as much as possible um like i said hopefully i draw uh, an elk tag if i don't then I probably won't go and I'll just keep collecting. Well, not collecting points, but building enough to where I can actually get just a hunt. I'm not going to be one of those guys that sits on top of 20 points. If I've got six points or seven points and that's enough to draw me a tag in a halfway decent area, I'm gone for sure. So that's uh, kind of my goal is to just apply for a couple different hunts. And one of them I think is probably realistic with zero to one point in Colorado. That's kind of like my fallback as far as that goes. Um, yeah. like I said, maybe if I, if, if, if that doesn't work out, I'm definitely going to try and do a bear hunt. We'll see what happens as far as how that goes. Uh, that'll probably be Idaho. And, uh, 
what's cool about Idaho is you can get two tags for uh, pretty cheap. I think it's like a hundred bucks or 150 bucks for two bear tags. That's so, and those are over the counter. Uh, They've got enough of them to where you don't have to really worry about drawing. Are you talking like an archery or a rifle bear tag? Probably rifle. Like I'll bring my bow, you know, if I, if I, if I drop one and have it tagged and it's already packed up in a cooler. Yeah. I might, I might get out my bow and see what happens. You know, it'll probably be spot and stock. So it makes it a little bit more difficult than bait, although you can't bait in Idaho, but uh, you, you never know. Um, and then I'm actually going in March, I'm going on a hog hunt to where it's archery, knives, and spears are the only thing you can use for the hunt. So, Dang. And I that's mean, not that public dogs? land, that's private. No, was... no dogs. It's actually, it, it's, I mean, it's a private land hunt. It's, uh, but it's just kind of something to do to get rid of uh, the winter blues and get into some warmer weather here. So, okay. So how do you, how do you hunt a pig with a knife if you're not using dogs? Bait. <laughs> you just, you're just like laying there making a corn angel and, and then you've got a <laughs> knife in your hand and you wait for them to come eat it. I mean, that probably would be a good way to go about it. Me and my buddy have always talked about using like a layout line and just dumping a bunch of corn on it and sitting there with a big old like a crocodile Dundee Bowie knife type thing. Oh, my gosh. We've, we've never done that, but we've talked about that quite a bit. Like you just lay in there and let them get right on top of you with the corn and then just pop up and stab them. But no, that's not actually uh, typically you sit in like a real low tree stand or something and have yeah. the bait underneath and you jump down on top of them. Same thing with the spear. Yeah. Um, you can also do the spirit from the ground if you kind of corner them, like have up some cattle pan- cattle panels or something like that, and then have the feeder, and then you just kind of get up up against them and, and then spear them. What's really fun, <laughs> the reason I'm laughing is because as you're saying all of this, I feel like you're pranking a new hunter. They're like, oh, how do you do it? And you're like, oh, you just put a low tree stand out, and then when they come underneath, you jump on them and stab them. And they're like, yeah. what? <laughs> but I know... Pig hunting, I mean, there's no wrong way to pig hunt, I feel like. Right. Uh, I just can't imagine trying to kill a wild boar with a knife. And the reason I say that is we used to help raise pigs. And every year for the 4th of July, we butcher a pig and we have a big 4th of July (laughs) party. And my buddies, I haven't been there for either of the bad experiences, which is probably why they ended up poorly. But they tell me a story about trying to butcher a pig. They make a bad shot on it to put it down. And now they are chasing this pig around with a knife. And the length of time that that went by on this domesticated pig before it actually expired, I was like, dude, I can't. I don't know how you kill one of these things with a knife. It doesn't even make sense unless they're being held down already. Yeah, big knife. And uh, be selective on size for sure. You're not going to want to do that on a four or five hundred pound uh, hog, for sure. You're going to no. want like a 60, 70 pound eater size hog to do that on. That, that makes way, a lot more sense. It's not as tough. It's going to expire quicker, and you're not going to have to worry about that big old pig coming back and goring you. That's. I think I think uh, a knife, like a or not a knife, a sword, like a samurai sword. I want to I want to dress up in like a, a camouflage ninja suit with a sword and then just jump down in like one clean swipe, or even a ghillie suit, right? There you sit go. there right on the edge of the feeder in just a ghillie suit with that sword ready to just thrust forward. I've thought about that too. So I mean, we'll <laughs> we'll see. I need a good sword guy. I don't have a sword guy. So if anybody's listening to this and they want to reach out, I need a sword. I need a sword to do that. Yeah, you're going to have to look at the most effective sword for pigs. I mean, I would imagine, well, I mean, you could either go with durability and just girt like a heavy sword that's just going to get through it, or you could go like <laughs> a, a thin blade aerodynamic, like real quick slice. Um, <laughs> you could go for this, the thrust. There's a mm-hmm. lot of, you need to just go watch Forged in Fire for like, I don't know, 20 episodes, and then you'll probably <laughs> yeah. get a pretty good idea of what what sword would be best for pig hunting. Yeah, I think there was some other show to where it wasn't Forged in Fire, but they actually uh, ran the blades through like a big gauntlet of different tests. It was just like a... Oh, yeah. I mean, 
they did it wasn't like forge and fire where they they do tests and stuff on it and the guy's like yeah it'll cut you know it wasn't like that it was uh to where these knife makers come together and they it doesn't show them making the knives it just shows them like running it through torture tests and it's like yeah, this they, big long obstacle course almost yeah they do full competitions like that like big time competitions and i watch yeah. these guys and they'll go in like one slice they'll slice through like 15 water bottles all the way through and then they have to chop through a chunk of wood and then slash a piece of rope and then release a tennis ball and cut it in half and i'm like this is pretty cool also i feel really inadequate with the knives that i use right now i don't think yeah. my little havilon or my kershaw <laughs> is going to make it nope nope definitely not against those you do need a good bushcraft knife or something like that yeah it, i i find it very interesting that the way that we talk about pig hunting and the way that we're okay with killing pigs, because I guarantee if you, if you raise the debate about, I mean, I got in a conversation online this morning about, uh, live stream trail cameras, you know, you mm -hmm. get, you can watch the animals out in front of the camera in real time. A lot of people had issues with it. A lot of people, I think it was Mark Kenyon who posted the initial video and almost everybody agreed that like, yeah, this is crossing a line. You know, I don't know if this is ethical anymore. You do that same thing with pigs. Nobody cares. Like you could, you could use a drone with a rocket launcher on it for pigs and nobody would care. And I think it's really funny how we certain game animals were totally okay. Like no, no restrictions whatsoever. And then other ones were like, no, you have to be ethical about it. Yeah. It's, it's true. Um, I think, I think one, you have to look at it now, a non hunter either way is going to see it and they're going to see that as gory, gruesome, super Definitely. graphic yeah. and just offensive as anybody can get. But from a hunter's aspect and even uh, ecological impact, it's kind of like invasive species as far as plants go, right? There's yep. some that are absolutely terrible. They shade out domestic plants, they kill them and then cause them to almost be extinct or eradicated from that area. Pigs are kind of the same way. They're sure. going to starve a lot of other animals. They are going to destroy property to the point. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen like videos of a peanut field, but they will turn over an entire peanut field, not to mention how fast they reproduce. It's one of the fastest repro reproducing animals of like any mammal. I mean, yeah. you're talking three, three gestation periods or something like that within uh, an entire year. And each time it's like six to 12 piglets. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a high reproduction rate to where any means necessary almost to eradicate. Yeah. So it's, I, it's I don't feel horrible. <laughs> No, 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 no. And, and yeah. I am I am the guy that is all about, like, as many pigs as we can take out, like, I, I view it as a win. Like, we need to try to eradicate them. And even with means like helicopter hog hunting, you see the videos of guys blowing them up with tannerite, thermal hunting at night, chasing them down with, with dogs. All of those things in the population is still growing. Because, like you said, they have all these gestational periods every year. Um or cycles every year. And then on top of that, they only have to be several months old and they can start reproducing. And so yeah. it's like when you have pigs that could potentially go through two reproduction cycles in their first year and, you know, six to, I think our biggest litter that we had when we were raising pigs was 14 and they didn't all survive, but still I'm thinking, man, 14 pigs. Yeah. <laughs> and then, within three to six months, all of those pigs are reproducing. It becomes a serious problem. And one that I don't know, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what these Southern States. And I mean, obviously pigs are working their way farther North. I don't know what people are going to do about it in order to actually get it under control. Unless you're in the state of Texas, in which case they'll just charge you money and you go hunt them. <laughs> it doesn't See, matter who I've ever met in the state of Texas. They'll, they'll tell you, yeah, I've got a terrible hog problem on my ranch. You need to come out. Come out anytime you want and hunt them. And then you call up that person. They're like, yeah, 400 bucks. You can come out and hunt all the hogs you want. I'm like, yeah. oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't you just say they're tearing up everything? But See, that's, but even uh, with that, like, they, they don't go away. 
you know, you can't, yeah. you can't fully eradicate these things. I don't, at least if you can, I don't know how you go about it. And I don't know that any government agency has figured out how to go about it. Even with almost no restrictions, you know, you can hunt them around the clock. You can hunt them with almost any type of weapon. You can call them, you can bait them, you can blow them up, you can run dogs on them and they still just keep on, keep on reproducing. They keep on growing in population. Um, I'm, I'm fearful that, you know, once they get up into the Midwest, it's, <laughs> that's when, not that Texas doesn't take it serious or Oklahoma or Louisiana, Arkansas, but once you start getting into these major whitetail states, you're going to see people yeah. getting nuts about it. We'll just call them just like they do the deer here in Illinois. Yeah. I mean, they call a ridiculous amount of deer. And I understand a lot of it is to slower curb the spread of CWD. But I think sometimes you got to look at the numbers and go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Are we trying to almost wipe them out or are we just trying to stop the spread? It's like a very fine line. And I know a lot of people get pretty upset about that. And it depends on what agency is actually doing the culling on uh, how they treat them once they're done with them too. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, I feel like everybody has such a limited, not everybody. A lot of people have a limited grasp of how things actually work. And they look at maybe their property that they they hunt and they're like, man, I didn't see as many deer this year. You know, the DNR sucks or fishing game doesn't know what they're doing. And then the next year it's amazing. And you, these agencies are looking at it on a statewide scale. They're also looking on it at it locally on a specific public land chunk or per county or per unit, depending on what state you're in. And I'm to the point now where I'm like, Hey, I'm going to let them do their job. You know, they, they're professionals. I have no education in this aside from my experience sitting out in a tree stand. So why would I think that I know more than they do about the environment, about the carrying capacity of a given, a given region. Um, but I, I think that we need to have more faith and obviously everyone, everyone has a problem with authority to some extent, I feel like. So, you know, you always are going <laughs> to be like, Oh, these guys suck. They don't know what they're doing. They're just trying to keep us from hunting. But in reality, like they, they want to see these populations thriving. They want to, they want it to be the best experience for all of us out there. And so we just need to let them do their job. And then from there we can decide what's ethical and legal. You know, if it's legal, Great. Do it if you want to, but it might not be ethical for certain people. And then you can shy away from it. Except for what was it? Washington state. I think that they said hunters no longer are a viable option for managing the resource or something oh my like gosh. that. And, and I was like, Whoa, wait a minute. Oh, Hey, they, like they I'm took not, it to the extreme. <laughs> I, I am not saying that they are always right. And I think the agency itself probably has a pretty good understanding of what needs to happen, what what they can allow that's not going to be det detrimental to a population or a species. Whether or not the lawmakers agree with that, you know, I mean, like, yeah. look, <laughs> there's way too many states where these big cities and uneducated people are making decisions. And that's yeah. where the issue comes. We need to allow... We need to allow the fishing game, the natural resource, whatever department you have in your state, we need to allow the professionals to make the decisions. Because, I mean, look at how many different places are outlawing certain things. Like not even cellular cameras, but just trail cameras in general are starting to be attacked in a lot of states. Bear hunting is no longer allowed in certain places. And yeah. if we just let the people in the city who have no stake in the game make all the choices, none of us are going to have any resources left to hunt or any opportunities to hunt those resources. Absolutely. That's, that's definite. I think, uh, yeah, we always get into politics at some point on the podcast and I'm fine with that. <laughs> I, I have fun with it. Uh, but man, I want to thank you for hopping on with me. This was a fun podcast. I know we bounced around in a lot of different directions, but that's kind of my style of podcasting. I like it. Where can where can people find you, man? Where can they follow along? Where can they listen to the podcast or check out the products you have? So you can find me on Instagram at publicly 
challenged, I believe is what it is. And then uh, you can also go to the website. You can even shoot me an email through the website or whatever if you want to, but it's publiclychallenged.com. And that houses all my merchandise as well as hunting products too. Sweet, man. Well, thanks for having me on. Good luck this season. Good luck foraging. Hopefully I can uh, send you some pictures of some wild edibles. And uh, I'm definitely going to start talking to people about the black walnut sap. That is, that sounds delicious. Yep. Absolutely, man. I hope I uh, see those pictures and uh, hit me up anytime you get any questions or anything like that. It was uh, good talking to you. Sounds good, man. Thanks. And that is going to wrap it up for today's show. Man, what a great episode with Luke. And it really does make me want to get out, learn more about the plants, the environment, uh, just the vegetation all around where I hunt, where I live, and see what kind of stuff I can pull straight from the earth and use and consume. And so that's one of the things that I'm going to take away from this and hopefully put into practice throughout the year. I think it could be pretty sweet to go out and just find extra little treats here and there when you're walking around or make some killer black walnut syrup. That sounds amazing with black walnuts on top of pancakes. Jeez. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. Hopefully it encourages you to get out and try something new. And as always, until next time, always choose adventure and God bless.